The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This morning I'm reading our scripture text from Exodus 20. We're studying the third commandment that is expressed in a single verse, so I'll read that, and then I'm going to supplement it with another passage, not the one that your bulletin says. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 10 as a supplementary passage. First of all, Exodus 20, the commandment, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then more on this theme that we've been thinking about, the one true God, there are no rivals to him, and this passage denounces that, but it also concludes in verse 7, Jeremiah 10, 1 through 7, concludes exalting God's name. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. May God be praised, and let us hear his word today. About two months ago at Easter, I was speaking to you from John's gospel, that passage in which the disciple we've come to call Doubting Thomas had been absent for an appearance of the Lord, and you remember how he said he would only believe if he could see with his eyes and touch with his hands, and so, of course, that revelation was given to him, and he uttered that epic cry of faith and adoration before Jesus when he said, Oh, my Lord and my God. I don't think I could possibly recapture the tone of stunned amazement and true faith that Thomas was speaking on that wonderful occasion. And yet, I know that you probably have, have heard someone say almost the same words as he said, perhaps just in the last 48 hours. Oh, my God. Only they didn't say it like that. 
They said it with a different tone. They said it with a different purpose and possibly not even knowing what their purpose was because it was one of those unconscious phrases that just comes out of people's mouths. And in fact, I find it interesting that our young people who have perfected techniques of communication with their texting today have managed to reduce this saying, oh my God, to three letters, OMG. May I suggest to you young people in your abbreviated communication that you think about what you're saying? God's name is not to be used carelessly and for nothing. Language betrays the state of the inner soul of the person. And your heart is being exposed every day as you choose words to speak. Nowhere is this more true than how we come to speak about the persons of the Godhead. Here we are with this third commandment, which declares this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The NIV says you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who does this. Now, we could state this negatively and say this law forbids all careless, thoughtless, or even deliberate misuse of God's name, casting angry aspersions in his direction or calling down curses from him or curses on him. But positively speaking, the commandment also urges believers to reverence and honor the divine name, recognizing that how we speak of a person tells a lot about how we regard that person. You know, isn't it interesting? I mean, if you say to a a friend, oh, hi, good to see you. Hey, you know, your name came up the other day in a conversation. Aren't you interesting, uh, altogether interested in what's going to be said? You say, oh, well, what was that? Well, who are you talking to? What did they say about me? We're interested in how people talk about us and how they talk to us. And God is likewise interested. And I want to say to you that there's much more to this third commandment than just your mother's warning years ago to watch your language. Yes, it involves the indictment of profanity and blasphemy, but that isn't really all there is to it. You might almost think of it as if it was like the signs that are posted if you come to an electrical power station. Uh, are a generating place where, you know, it's, there's danger because there's electricity, and there'd be signs posted, danger, high voltage, don't touch. The notion of God being given to Israel here from Mount Sinai was that God is a generator of power, and He's worthy of great respect. His essence, His being, and His character are not to be trifled with. So first I want to ask the question, what is so special about a name? If you don't know too much about Shakespeare, you've probably picked up some lines from Romeo and Juliet somewhere in the past, and you know there was this young lady, Juliet, who was from uh, one family in Verona, Italy, and she was smitten by love for a young man who was from another family, which happened to be her father's enemy. And Juliet was musing about that situation and how she could possibly be able to love somebody that 
would be an enemy to her father. And, and she said, what's in a name anyway? That which we call a rose by any other name smells as sweet. What difference does it make what a person's name is? Well, it does make a difference. Because names often convey the whole personality, the person. In our society, those of you with a more of a business mindset would, would begin to think quickly about brand recognition and brand identity. I picked up the little tidbit of information a couple weeks ago that the stadium where the Phillies play in Philadelphia, Citizens Bank Park, became Citizens Bank Park because that bank paid $57 million for a 25-year license to have it called that. Presumably, they'll either renew that in 25 years or it'll be called Joe's Hot Dog Stadium or something else. But someone is paying to brand that, and that's very important. Names become wedded to the identity of things in our world. Suppose your name was Fred McDonald, and you decided you wanted to go into business, and uh, you felt that uh, a hamburger restaurant would be a good idea. And maybe your favorite colors are red and gold, and you wanted them for your restaurant theme. Well, as long as you would proceed and call your restaurant Fred's Burgers, I assume you'd be just fine. But you dare not go ahead and call your restaurant McDonald's. That's your name. You say, why can't I use my own name? You cannot use your name because a very large and powerful corporation is going to shut you down and take away your right to use that name because it belongs to them, the largest restaurant chain in our country, as you well know. Now, there's a broad principle. That may seem far askew from the commandment of God, but I think there's a principle there that applies. If I'm stating it too crassly, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you could say that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, holds an exclusive trademark on his being, his power, his exaltation, his superiority to all others, and that trademark, in effect, must be respected. You remember at the burning bush in Exodus 3, we read that strange passage when Moses wanted to know the Lord's identity when he was being called by God to go down and speak to Pharaoh. He said, who's sending me? And the Lord said that strange answer, I am who I am is sending you. Seems like a very strange reply. But I think God was saying, look, you don't name me, I name myself. Moses, you came into the world and somebody told you what your name was going to be. You didn't have a choice. While you were in utero, your mom didn't tap on her stomach and say, what do you think of the name Moses? Is that okay? Tap three times if you like it. It doesn't work that way. We get names from our parents and we live with that name for better or worse. God is saying, nobody names me. I name myself. I reveal who I am. And that is my prerogative. I am self-existing, self-sufficient, entirely sovereign. I'm like no one else. Now, we know there are actually many names for God. We could, we could have a whole long sermon series and just go into different names that are given to God. The name Jehovah has different aspects. Jehovah, Jireh, and others. There are names like the Most High, the Almighty, the Redeemer, the Shepherd, the Father, in the 
biblical time, he was called, of course, Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, the supreme reigning one, Jehovah. The biblical pronunciation in the time of Israel was Yahweh. And they would not go around saying Yahweh this and Yahweh that. They dared not even pronounce the name except for the high priest saying it on the Day of Atonement. And so I read earlier how Jeremiah 10 expresses that praise in which Jeremiah said, No one is like you, O Lord, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, you are very great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of nations? This reverence is your due, Jeremiah said. And so we speak of lifting up the name of God or calling upon his name. We're talking about approaching him in sincerity and respect and faith. Romans 10.13 says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon God on the basis of who he is and who he reveals himself to be, particularly in Christ, will be saved. You are actually claiming the rights of God's name franchise when you call upon his name. Taking up his name or calling on his name indicates taking God seriously for who he is. But Abusing his name, carelessly speaking his name, cursing his name is the exact opposite of disrespect for God of the first order. I'm going to suggest to you five different nuanced aspects of how we might possibly violate this third commandment. There's more to it than you might think. And these are linked and and they're similar, they're overlapping. And there's a word or two that describes each of the five possibilities, and then I'll try to explain them to you. The first would be the obvious one, profanity or blasphemy, either of those two words. And that's what we think of most when we think of this commandment, swearing, cursing, that takes up the name of God or Christ. You stop and think about it for a minute. For all the Christian ministry that goes on and all the Bible teaching that goes on in which the words Jesus Christ are said, in our land and in other lands, and then the Lord's name is spoken. I wonder if we had to somehow clock the frequency of his name being spoken, whether the frequency of the words Jesus Christ in Christian tones of ministry are actually more frequent than those two names being spoken in cursing and in meaningless speech in everyday language of our time. The root derivation of the word profanity actually means attacking a temple, attacking what is sacred. And we're capable of doing that. James in chapter 3 verse 6 says, the tongue of man is a fire that sets ablaze the course of a life. In that same chapter, verse 10, James 3.10, the apostle said, out of the same mouth of man comes a blessing and a curse. We can bless the name of God, and then we turn around and curse his name. Well, blasphemy, of course, originates in a hard attitude. And it's a hard attitude of anger or rage. Don't try to tell me that those who constantly curse God's name don't have some kind of deep-seated anger towards him. 
Eventually, I don't think every time someone speaks God's name in a curse, they're honestly, you know, analyzing their anger at God. But it originates there, and it becomes a custom and a habit so that their heart and their mind and their tongue is seared in such a way that they're, they're really no more intelligent than a donkey bleeding when they curse God. Thomas Watson, I've mentioned, who wrote a book on the Ten Commandments several centuries ago, tells this story. It's, a, it's an olden times story, and maybe at first you won't see how it applies, but I think you'll understand after I complete it. Thomas Watson tells of a long-ago day when a wife decided to confess something to her husband because the husband was apparently dying. And what she had to confess was very difficult. They had three sons, and she needed, she felt, to tell her husband that only one of those three sons was biologically his son. She told him. The husband heard that. He considered it, and he asked for his lawyer to come and see him. And he made an arrangement with the lawyer for something to, to happen after his death. And so the man did die soon, and the lawyer saw that what had been arranged was carried out. Rather bizarre, but it was the man's instruction that before his body was buried, that they would take his body and prop him up with his back against a tree, his dead body. And then each of his three sons would be given a bow and one arrow. And that they would stand at a distance and each of them would shoot an arrow at their father's body and that they would be told whoever had the arrow that hit the father in the heart would receive the entire estate. Wow. Well, two sons stepped up, they did it, and both lodged arrows in the chest of their dead father. The third man stepped up, and he threw down the bow and the arrow and denounced the entire ritual and said, I will have no part in this desecration of my father's body. The lawyer said, congratulations, the entire estate of your father is yours, for you obviously are the true son, who was unwilling to assault his father. And Watson was saying, isn't this exactly what illegitimate sons and daughters of God do? They're not afraid at all to shoot flaming arrows at God every day. But true sons and daughters of Christ, of God in Christ, ought to have a great respect and a great reluctance to malign or associate the name of their God with a mere curse. Well, a second way of violating the third commandment is what we might call by the word perjury. This means attaching God's name to oaths or vows that are made carelessly, promising something but yet not really intending to see that as a serious promise if it has God's name. If we say, so help me God, why did courts decide to start doing that? Of course, I know they're eliminating it today in many places, but when once at least the state had some respect for God, they said, look, we're going to have witnesses in the court put their hand in a Bible and say, so help me God, because that would at least solemnize the promise and perhaps give people pause so they were witnessing something before God. Well, whether we're talking about marriage vows or church membership vows or promises to people we love or promises of integrity to an employer. Jesus once said, look, you shouldn't be turning around saying, 
so help me God this, so help me God that. He said, that should be used only very carefully and, and very seldom. He said, it's better to let your yes be yes and your no be no. But certainly, if you make a promise in God's name, give that deep thought. Because the court of heaven is your witness to your potential integrity. Thirdly, I would call another way to violate the command hypocrisy. And that is simply uh, professing to believe things about God or from God which are not reflected in how you live. You say, oh, I believe this, I will do this, the Bible tells me this, but then your life is quite opposite. Isaiah 29, 13 has that prophet speaking for God to say, this people draw near to me and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This one is rather obvious. It's much like perjury, breaking an oath, but it may not necessarily involve an oath. It involves what we believe, but don't live. And then there's a fourth way to violate the commandment that I would call infamy. We read in the papers that the son or daughter of some famous parent, some Hollywood star or somebody, is indicted for a drug arrest or a drunken driving arrest. And, and of course, that famous parent then is brought into a certain disgrace by association of what his child has done. Well, that infamy can extend to us. We bring disgrace upon the name of God with whom we are associated. We are God's adopted children in Jesus Christ. If we have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we have called upon Christ as Savior and elder brother in the faith, we bear that name, Christian. Now, it's men who made that name up to call someone a Christian. But we are those associated with the fame and the reputation of God. Will we bring infamy on him as the world watches how we behave? A fifth way would be a way specifically spoken of in, in, in the Bible, and that is what I would call by two words, false prophecy. In this, we lay claim to things that we would seem to say or imply God has said when maybe God has not said these things. And the Bible is constantly warning about prophets who speak lies in the Lord's name. Well, maybe you say, I don't pretend to be a prophet, so how does this apply to me? Well, if you're a person who is going to, in your political views, announce to the world, you know, John Q. Smith absolutely is God's ordained candidate to be the next president of the United States, as if Scripture declared such a thing. Be careful. Scripture doesn't declare that. If you're one who does the rather foolish and abusive thing that I have heard of Christians doing, coming to another Christian who might be suffering, might, might have a disease or something unfortunate happen, and they say, look, I know why. God has told me why you're suffering this disease and, and this pain right now. It's because you left your wife. God told me that. Well, since God didn't tell you that, don't claim that he did. Don't claim to exceed the authority of what God has said, as if somehow you had his private voice. These are all ways in which we can violate this commandment. In conclusion this morning, I'd ask you to think about the idea that we serve the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Jesus has been given that great name, hasn't he? 
The New Testament says he's the greatest of all. He came the lowest of all to be raised the highest of all and to be given the name that is above every name. Now, if you worked in the household of Queen Elizabeth, if you uh, served tables or clean floors or something in Buckingham Palace, you would certainly be instructed that if the queen happened to walk by while you were doing the floor or serving at the table or whatever it is you do, you would know how to address her, your majesty. You would do the little curtsy or bow or whatever because here's the monarch. You need to be respectful. I think they must also be instructed. It's important not only how you speak to the monarch, but how you speak about the monarch to one another. You don't call her, hey, queenie, you know. You're respectful. And if you weren't, I don't think you'd have the job very long. Martin Luther reflected about this, the way people are so careful about giving right titles to honorary people on earth. He said this, I quote him, I was stupefied to think that my small tongue would ever presume to speak of God at all, let alone speak to him. Luther said, men stammer in order to get the honorific titles of other men spoken correctly. But how shall we deign to address the highest majesty of all majesties? If I would whisper his name, it seems that my poor sinful tongue must surely profane him. Luther was saying, I need to stop and think, even though God invites me to call on his name, invites me to trust in him and pray to him. Who am I speaking to and who am I speaking about? Acts 4.12 tells us there's no other name given under heaven by which to be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And it says further in John 1.12 that all of us who believe in that name of Christ, we are given the right to be children of God. We're invited to speak to him. We're his We're freely invited into his intimacy, but still, how do we use that? Are we flippant with God? Let me suggest, even in little ways, and maybe some of you are going to think I'm stepping on some leader's toes. I'm not. I'm at all kinds of meetings in our church that open and close with prayer, and and that is right, and that is good. That's what we should do. But I want to make you think for a minute as you pray, even in what we might call routine ways, we're gathered for a meeting of this or that committee, and someone says, well, let's begin with prayer. Well, that's good. But you know what I respect and what I like to see? Now, I I can just see all the next meetings I'll be in will be characterized by this, but I like to see the chairman of the committee pause for a moment and just be quiet and think about how he's going to address the Most High. Not just with a lot of cliches, oh God, here we are for this meeting, bless us as we talk, blah, 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 amen. That, that may be sincere, but do we just stop before we pray anytime and say, who am I addressing here? I have the wonderful privilege to address God most high. He promises to hear me. He who created the heavens and the earth the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, I stand in awe that I could speak and he would hear. This is the God, after all, who said to the unbeliever, look, 
Every word you have said is going to be brought out as evidence against you in the final judgment. I've had Christians really worry about that one. Listen, your sins are absolved in Jesus Christ. The person who has to worry about every word spoken being against him is the one not covered in the blood of Christ. That would be true for you if it weren't for Jesus. Jesus even says there are going to be those who who have spoken honorifically of me in various ways in the final day, and they're going to come and say, Lord, Lord, I'm yours. And he's going to say, really? I never knew you. Your words were all in vain. Jesus, who is given the name above every name, is going to see every knee finally bow and every tongue reverently confess him. Might we be those who today would joyfully, with a tone of wonder and adoration, speak that great name, believing that even our weak prayers, that our sinful tongues are heard and seen by him. Let Psalm 8-1 be our concluding word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, but out of the mouths of babies and infants, might I add, like us, you've established praise unto yourself. Our Father and our God, you truly are great. You should be dwelling in such unapproachable splendor that we could not help but sin to even pronounce any of your names. But you gave us the name by which to know you and recognize you, the name of Jesus. And so we thank you that you let us be familiar in that way. But in being familiar, may we never be flippant. Spare us from including you in the curses and the swearings of our tongue, in the false vows that we would take and then break. Lord, truly your name is excellent in all the earth. Amen.